Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. In our first show of 2021, probing the extinct direwolf's DNA and what the UK's science relationship with the EU will look like post Brexit. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. America was once home to a massive species of wolf known as the direwolf. They could reach nearly 70 kilograms, and they shared the landmass with several other now-extinct mammals, up until the late Pleistocene when they all but vanished. Luckily, there were lots of them, and so they left an extensive mark in the fossil record. For instance, there have been thousands of them excavated from the famous La Brea tar pits in California alone. But why they went extinct, and how they're related to their modern wolf family is still up for debate. Along with his team, Laurent France from Queen Mary University of London and the University of Munich turned to ancient DNA, recovering dozens of partially fossilised remains, subfossils as they're known in the business, providing a clearer story of this ancient American predator. Reporter Jeff Marsh found out more. We're talking about a time at which the climate was on average colder than we are now. There's quite a few glacial periods where a large proportion of North America would have been covered by a very thick ice sheet. And everything that was living south of the Canadian-American border would have been living in a sort of dry and relatively warm environment. We have multiple predators around. Um, the American lion and you have these sort of giant short-faced bear as well. But really the most common one, the one that is the most ubiquitous, is the direwolf. And then later on, the grey wolf and the coyote, we don't know exactly when, but they were there before the direwolf went extinct for sure, and probably tens of thousands of years before direwolf and other mega carnivores like the lion and the bear went extinct. So I'm Laurent France. I'm a professor of paleogenomics at the University of Munich. 
and a senior lecturer at the Queen Mary University in London. So I guess the big mystery is that we know for a time that direwolves were sharing America with those other canids like the grey wolf and the coyote, but somehow the grey wolf kind of ended up as this top predator and the, the direwolves ended up in evolution's wastebasket. I mean, in the end, things have reversed a little bit. Now the grey wolf is almost extinct from North America and the one that's found everywhere now in North America is the coyote, the smaller version that was maybe the outsider for a long time and seems to come out as the winner in the end. Okay, so really what you're interested in then is how these direwolves are related to these other wolf-like animals, though. So, you know, for a long time, people have been looking at the morphology because this is all we had. Um, and, and so when you look at the morphology of a direwolf, it's just very strikingly similar to a wolf. And you can use fancy statistics and sort of 3D modeling of these skulls, you know, to put these skulls through the scanners and compare these skulls to all these other canids. And, and when you're comparing the skulls or the tooth or the other elements to other species, there's a striking relationship between grey wolf and dire wolf. They look almost, you know, identical. It's just not really a shape difference, but just a size difference. And that's what led people to think, well, they just are a species or a subspecies that's what you see from a morphological perspective. Sure. But to properly resolve the story, you and your crew turned to ancient DNA, didn't you? So we turned into ancient DNA and also ancient proteomics. You know, there's not just only DNA that survive in these subfossils, there's also the proteins survive. It stays a lot longer than DNA. And in fact, we managed to get some of these from the Labrea tarpits, which are you know, highly degraded material in which there is no DNA whatsoever. So that gives you also an answer. And the answer we got from that specific sequence was that, yes, they were different from grey wolf, but it was really difficult to say more than that. You need the genomes for this. So we had 46 subfossil specimens from places like Tennessee and Wyoming. Of those 46, we only identified five that actually possessed enough DNA that we could sequence and reconstruct part of their genome. We also sequenced the genomes of African relatives to make sure that we had the genomes of all the uh, quasi-related species. And then, and then you use a, an algorithm to reconstruct a tree. And then you can say, well, the dire wolf was actually extremely far away from the gray wolf. You can also use various methods to try to estimate how long ago were their ancestor living. So, you know, how long ago did they separate into two different species? And it was millions of years ago. And that, that was that was extremely surprising. What was it? Five million years ago? Five to seven million years ago, about. Large confidence interval, but still a long time ago. <laughs> and does that locate where the dire wolf originated? It does to some extent. It allows us to sort of think about what we call a biogeographic model. We think that the dire wolf was part of this lineage that was in America for you know millions of years ago, and most of its evolution took place in the America, as opposed to all the other living canids that lives nowadays, even those that are in the America nowadays. So like the coyote, the grey wolves, they came later, quite recently. They came later, much more recently, yes. You mentioned earlier, though, didn't you, that, you know, the, the canids themselves, these wolf-like animals, they are kind of well known for their interbreeding and their hybridization, aren't they? So, you know, how do we know that that wasn't going on in the direwolves? So with genomes, you can actually test this. And so we can do the same thing with a direwolf. 
And when you're looking at the genus Canis, which is most of the canids that we think of today, except not the foxes, but coyotes, grey wolf, the dole in Southeast Asia, but also the African wild dogs and the jackals, there is gene flow all over the place. Uh, it seems like canids interbreeds even they will separate into species stay away for a few million years and then they'll meet again somehow and then interbreed again and then we see a lot of lineages that are almost equal hybrids between two species so what we were expecting is basically okay if you overlap with another canis for a long time there will be some gene flow and it turns out that the dire wolf actually didn't really interbreed with either gray wolf or coyote which was also extremely surprising even they morphologically so similar well, one thing we can be quite certain about is that the dire wolf, along with lots of other megafauna, massive animals from the end of the Pleistocene, all went extinct. What does your genetic analysis do for our understanding of perhaps why the dire wolf didn't make it through and yet, you know, the grey wolf and the coyotes, they did? It seems that there is one rule for this canny species, one very important rule in their evolution is mix up with whatever is living there. So if you arrive in a new environment, then you can mix up with the species that live there, borrow a few genes and, and a few behavior and sort of adapt yourself faster. Or you could also do that with a new species coming in uh, when there are changes in the environment. What we're thinking maybe is happening is that the environment was changing quite rapidly at the end of the Pleistocene. And, and so the dire wolf wasn't able to actually adapt fast enough. And, and it wasn't able to adapt fast enough potentially because it wasn't able to borrow those genes from these incoming species. And actually, it seems that the grey wolf has been able maybe to survive in some part, like in the Yellowstone Park, where we see black grey wolf. This black grey wolf probably acquired this black cut color through interbreedization, in this case, with dogs that came even later with humans. And that black color seems to have been um, highly beneficial for them and maybe, you know, allow them to survive longer. So the dire wolf didn't have this potential mechanism. It seems to have broken maybe the rule number one of surviving and as a candid species. Yeah, so they were these kind of really specialist top predators, maybe too specialist on these big prey. And because they stayed so isolated and didn't mix up their genetic toolkit, they were stuck when things changed around them maybe they were definitely too specialized we have a lot of you know, evidence for this they were clearly big they were clearly morphologically made for attacking large preys right and if your large preys disappear then that's it but you could think that you know maybe some of your genes could have been surviving in these gray wolf population that were living afterwards and in a way they would not have gone completely extinct the way they are now one thing I thought was, you know, does the fact that they've been genetically isolated and yet they have this striking morphological resemblance of current wolves, does that say anything about the body plan of a wolf? Because it strikes me that it's like evolution's gone. This is a kind of brilliant, lethal blueprint. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You hear that about the crocodilians, don't you? Their body plan hasn't changed much for millions of years. So, yeah, this is something that we've been asking ourselves. Are we looking at a convergence between a grey wolf and a dire wolf, or are you actually looking at the ancestral form, right? This is this sort of this form that has been around for a very long time because it's so efficient. So yeah, I think it speaks for that body plan as like something really adaptive. But I think the grey wolf had something else. What's interesting about the grey wolf is that it's extremely plastic. 
they have what we call ecotypes. Some of them hunt bisons and some of them hunt rabbits, right? And they walk in teams or they are more solitary. They have widely different sizes and widely different behavior. It's an incredibly plastic and sort of flexible species. So this plus that sort of killing body plan, I think, make it like a almost indestructible species. That was Laurent France. For more on those ancient apex predators, we'll put a link to the paper in the show notes. And thanks to Yellowstone National Park Sound Library for some of those canid recordings you heard throughout the story. Now, this would normally be the time in the show for Coronapod, but there has been a lot of coronavirus-related news recently, so we'll be putting out a standalone episode later on in the week. Look out for that in your podcast feeds. Back to this show, though, and coming up later, we'll be talking about the B-word, Brexit, and what the future of research in Europe looks like in a post-Brexit world. Right now, though, Dan Fox is here with the research highlights. Pluto's distinctive blue haze may be a result of an atmosphere rich in particles of frozen organic matter. Planetary scientists had thought that Pluto's haze is formed by light-driven chemical reactions that yield complex organic compounds. But now a team of researchers have proposed a chillier explanation. Using data from the New Horizons spacecraft, among other sources, the team found that because of Pluto's cold atmosphere, organic compounds condense readily in its skies. The resulting organic ice particles are likely a major contributor to Pluto's haze. The authors think that organic ice particles could also explain the hazy skies of other distant objects, like Neptune's largest moon, Triton. Chill out with that research over at Nature Astronomy. Mice may not seem to be the most sensitive creatures, but researchers have mapped neurons in their brains that could be involved in empathy. The team of scientists first induced an emotion in one mouse, Then, they allowed a second mouse to observe these emotions. In all of the observing mice, brain patterns varied with the emotion they witnessed. Mice witnessing another mouse in fear or pain, or even gaining relief from pain, mirrored those emotions in their brain circuitry. The researchers hope that their results could contribute to the development of psychiatric drugs to enhance empathy in people who lack it. Read that research in full in Science. Now, we haven't touched on Brexit in the podcast for a while, but the process of the UK leaving the European Union has, of course, been a matter of some concern for researchers and scientific institutions for several years. Over the past few weeks, a lot of political moves happened and decisions were made that have clarified what the future might mean for science as a result of Brexit, in the short term at least. Here to help me unpick what's been going on is Lizzie Gibney, who's been following the Brexit process for a very long time. 
Lizzie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Ben. Yes, it does feel like a long time. Well, just to get us up to speed, what's happened over the past few weeks? So the whole of 2020 was a transition period after the UK had technically left the EU already at the end of January last year. But then this transition period meant the real break was going to be on the 31st of December 2020. Now, thankfully, even though it came very, very close to the wire, there was a deal that was done on 24th of December on Christmas Eve, which meant that there was an avoidance of this no deal cliffhanger situation that was the thing that had really scared a lot of people and would have had some really damaging impacts. And this deal is quite expansive. I mean, it covers off a lot of sectors. But let's look at some of the science-specific things it contains. And I picked out a few that were of quite some concern to researchers over the years. Um, The big one is funding. And the UK has been a recipient of a lot of research money from various EU schemes. And there were fears in the UK that there'd be no more access to this funding in the future. What's been going on here? Yeah, so this is really good news and the point on which most scientists kind of reacted with a lot of relief. The UK is going to be able to stay part of the European research programme. So that was Horizon 2020, but starting in 2021, the new programme called Horizon Europe. So that means that the UK will be able to get grants from that programme. So all the collaborative grants, but also those such as the European Research Council and the Marie Curie grants, which are the individual ones. So basically, it means that the UK will be able to stay part of those European research programmes pretty much as they were before. A few little tweaks. There's one new programme called the European Innovation Council that the UK will be out of. But in general, it's really good news because it's basically status quo. And this overall pot of money is worth billions and billions of pounds. And you say things are broadly similar, but the devil, of course, is in the details. And and the UK is now not a full member of these funding streams. It is an associate member. And what does that mean in in real terms? Yes, an associate member is essentially somebody who isn't a member of the EU, but can take part on broadly the same terms as a member, because the UK will be paying a certain amount of money into the overall pot, with the understanding that it will take something similar out. Well, that seems fairly straightforward. Then when can UK researchers start applying for this money? Well, one of the issues is that there is not actually an association agreement yet. So part of this overall trade deal was to say that this associate membership status was going to happen. But that actually has to be signed off by a committee. That may be a rubber stamp process. We're not entirely sure. The actual grants, the first grants that go out under Horizon Europe, probably won't be till March or April. So there are, you know, there's a little few months of leeway. But it's also possible that that scheme gets underway before this agreement is ready. So that's one potential little snag. And you mentioned that the UK is paying money into this pot to then take it out again. And I can see the arguments being made that that's perhaps a bit strange. But it seems that these are very, very well established schemes and they have a lot of kudos and and they're very useful for helping things like collaborations. Absolutely. So you'll have grants like the European Research Council grants that the very top people within the EU compete for. And that is something you can't really recreate within an individual country. So staying part of that is, is incredibly important. And then also, as you mentioned, in collaboration, that's something that is just very hard to replicate. When you have a system like this, you have all networks that already exist and are working really, really well. It was actually that collaboration really over and above the funding in itself that people were really, really scared about losing. So they're very, very happy to be able to keep. Seemingly good news there, Lizzie, but after the Brexit vote, we saw a pretty significant drop in the number of UK researchers applying for European funding. Is there the expectation that applications will go up again now that they're able to do so? 
There's certainly the hope. The strange thing really is that the UK never was out. There was never a change in its status. So there was no real reason for UK participation and its level of funding to drop. But like drop it really did from 2016 to 2020. And that was just purely down to the uncertainty. People saying, well, do we want to have UK researchers leading this programme when they might be out in a year, two years, three years? So that created such a problem. And in now, in theory, there is stability. The UK is part of this programme. That should not happen anymore. But there's also a bit of reputational damage. So I think there's going to be a real challenge there and a task for UK researchers to rebuild those networks, that kind of reputation that they have, and try and regain the status that they previously had in the European programmes. If we think about the scientific enterprise, of course, funding is very, very important. But the lifeblood of science are the people who do it, right? The scientists themselves. And now that the UK has left the European Union, that unrestricted right to go and live and work between the two regions has ended. And of course, that could affect people being able to go into labs and do research. Broadly, the argument is, you know, already you can have a scientist coming from the States or from China to the UK, to anywhere within Europe, and they will be able to take up their job. You know, visas exist. But there is no longer that ease of travel, that kind of interchangeability where your country just doesn't matter if you're an EU citizen. So there will be a lot of extra bureaucracy and that will obviously hamper things. But there are new visa systems that do exist, so it won't be impossible. So if you're an EU citizen and you're taking up a job in the UK, there'll be a points based system that means you're kind of considered alongside scientists from the rest of the world and something called the Global Talent Visa, which is a particular scheme for scientists. And the other way around, again, it's a little bit trickier because obviously you've got a whole different bunch of countries. You've got 27 more countries within the EU. And although they have some harmonisation over the rules for visas for scientists, there's a little bit of difference still that exists between those countries. So if you're a UK scientist and you're wanting to go and work in the EU, you're going to have to look specifically at the country that you're going to and figure out what kind of visa you're going to need. It's going to be a lot more difficult than it was before, but not impossible. Well, let's think about one of the, the other key parts of science. Obviously, we've got funding, we've got people, but of course, data is really, really at the core of scientific research. And the free flow of data between countries in the EU really was making research a lot more straightforward, I would imagine, in many, many cases. But yet again, things are different as of now. Yes, data. Everyone's nerdy, but very, very important favourite topic. So the free flow of data from the EU to the UK and vice versa was completely possible previously as an EU member state. Now it's a bit different. So now we have the UK's data regulations on one side and the EU's data regulations on the other. And I'm guessing this is what's making things potentially a bit difficult when it comes to data sharing. So the UK's rules are not very different from from the EU's because they're based on exactly the same directive. But there's a process that the UK has to undergo for the EU to ensure that that is still the case. And it's called adequacy. So there's an adequacy decision that everyone's still waiting on. If that comes through, then in theory, this free flow of data, of personal data, which is obviously very important for things like clinical trials, patient data, then we should be able to continue with the status quo where that data flows freely. But we're still waiting on it. And obviously now Brexit has happened. The UK is no longer a member state. So the way around this for now is that the transition period, at least when it comes to data, has been extended. So there's going to be another six months of acting as if 
the UK, when it comes to data, we're still part of the EU. And if a decision can't be reached, then what sort of areas of, of research could that impact? Well, the big one would be clinical trials. I mean, you have a lot of trials that happen between countries and you have patients in several European countries, maybe are headed up by an institution in the UK. And in that kind of situation, you might be in a position where you have to be transferring that patient data from, uh, say, France or Germany to the UK, and that will no longer be able to happen smoothly. You might need to redraft your contracts. You'll have an awful lot more bureaucracy. So that, that could potentially be a big issue. Well, Lizzie, if there's some of the broad issues that, that people have been talking about, let's, let's maybe expand it out then. What are scientists saying about this deal? I mean, are, are they happy? So I think probably relief was the greatest emotion that people felt. We really didn't know right up into the last minute there's going to be any kind of a deal at all. So the fact that not only was there a deal and that this deal actually meant that the UK would stay part of the European research programmes, which is something people have been campaigning on for years, that was you know something that made people very, very happy. And the kind of potential huge damage of Brexit, the worst damage was not done. I think there's also just a huge amount of regret, though. Researchers really are an international bunch and... There were almost none wanted to leave the EU. Um, and then maybe a little bit of trepidation because we don't really know if the UK is going to be able to regain that really prominent position that it had in Horizon 2020 before Brexit started. So, you know, regret, relief and some trepidation, I would say. Lizzie Gibney there, who's written a news explainer on all the topics we've touched on today and more. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for the weekly briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. Ben, what have you got this week? Well, Nick, we're going to head to the moon for my story today, and it's a story that's published in Nature. And it's a very exciting time to be a lunar researcher, because there's a bunch of missions scheduled to go to the moon in the next few years. And some of these missions will be visiting the moon's poles for the first times. And these are very, very interesting areas for science. And what makes these areas so interesting? Well, that's a great question, Nick. And the answer is water, or ice, I guess, because this water is frozen, that's tucked away in some of the craters there. And this, as I say, this water is of great interest to researchers. But there's been a bit of a dilemma. There's kind of two schools of thought. Some researchers want to sort of go up there and get hold of it quickly and, and have a look and see what's going on inside. It might offer clues, for example, as to when water first appeared on the moon or on Earth. But there's another school of thought of if people just go up there and start sort of digging it up and maybe bringing it back to Earth, that it could be contaminated by the very experiments set to go and have a look at it. Mm, and I suppose the risk with contamination is it may muddy future research and maybe we won't be able to understand it as well as we could have if we hadn't contaminated it. I, I think that's right, Nick. But as I say, you know, there's a lot of debate going on in this area. But there's some reports that have either just come out or are coming out which are aiming to tidy things up. One is from the US National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine, which says that space agencies need to prioritise what science they want from the lunar poles in order to explore them effectively. And this other group, the uh, International Committee of Space Research, which outlines the best practices for space exploration, is evaluating what's going on. And they're going to decide in the forthcoming months whether to issue new guidelines for spacecraft going to the moon. And it's thought that NASA and other space agencies will follow COSPAR's decision on how to visit the moon responsibly. And how might one visit the moon responsibly? How do you avoid this contamination? Well, one of the areas of concern is water vapour that comes out of rockets as they're sort of flying around. And it's there is some concern that that would land on the water and really making it difficult to work out what's going on. 
going on. Now, some researchers say, hey, that's just landing on the top layer, don't worry about it, but others are more concerned. So one of the ways that this might be avoided is by, well, very careful writing of lists. Very careful writing of lists. You need to give me more. <laughs> okay, so, so I mean, at the moment, this International Committee on Space Research, their guidelines suggest that nations keep a list of all the organic materials, you know, carbon, composites, paints, adhesives, aboard missions that are going to the moon. And that helps scientists work out, well, that was actually brought there. So if we found it, it may have come from, from ourselves kind of thing. And the thought is that these lists might be expanded to keep a list of gases that could be emitted from rockets or life support systems. And that would help sort of pull those out of the data and know what's contamination and what isn't. And I wonder as well, is there a risk that these things have already been contaminated? How do we know that what's there now hasn't been sullied by previous moon missions? Well, you're absolutely right, Nick. It, it appears that the moon's polar ice already has been contaminated by past missions. But I think this is more of a far-sighted thing to help future researchers get more of a clear idea of the past by avoiding contamination. Well, hopefully with the future moon missions, we'll see this come to light. And sticking with a kind of space theme, I've also been looking at, well, not the moon, but stuff orbiting the Earth. And this is a spy satellite. Right. I mean... I don't know where you're going to go with this one, Nick, to be honest. What's going on with spy satellites? Well, it's not really what's going on now. It's what has been going on in the past. And as I'm sure many people are aware, during the Cold War, the US in particular had many such spy satellites orbiting the Earth in order to look at their potential enemies, places like the USSR. But later on, these spy satellites were actually used for a lot of important environmental work. And that's what this article in the New York Times has been looking at. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess these satellites have or had some pretty amazing optics and, and very, very precise cameras and what have you. So I guess they were being used to, to, to look at the Earth in really fine detail? Exactly. I mean, if you want to see if someone's got a rocket base or a weapon or something like that, then you need really good resolution and really good images from your satellites. And later on, after the USSR collapsed, these satellites were still floating around and various agencies in the US trying to find a use for them. And this story, that I, as I said in the New York Times, focuses on Dr. Linda Zoll, who seems to have been really important in this. And she worked for the CIA and she'd previously worked using satellites and other aerial imagery for scientific work and then in the CIA she put together a team called Medea that really worked very hard to get this wealth of data wealth of images and put it to use to investigate how the climate and how the environment is changing over time. Well, Nick, the CIA, by its very existence, is a fairly secretive organisation from what I understand about it. How was this data used? Was this was this sort of released into the sort of public sphere or was, or was it kept internal? So a bit of both, really. So some of this data came out much later after it had been declassified. Other bits were actually given to the public to be used. And as I said, like this was a push in the 90s after the Soviet Union had collapsed. And there was a wonder in the US about why they're spending so much money on these satellites. And this idea actually promoted by Dr. Linda Zell to look at the environment was an interesting way to use these satellites, make it worth their while for them to still be there and get a really good understanding of it. 
So she doesn't appear on any of the papers that actually came out because she was working for the CIA and it's a very secretive organisation. But the article in the New York Times estimates that probably hundreds of papers have relied on data from these spy satellites that were released to the public. Wow. I mean, what sort of, what sort of things were they looking at then? What, what were these papers about? Well, one interesting thing about how satellites work is a lot of them have a north to south rotation. They go from the top to the bottom or the bottom to the top of the planet because that way you can cover a lot of the Earth. But what that means is they actually spend quite a lot of time going over the Arctic and the Antarctic and that isn't actually of much interest to people spying on people, but it's a great interest for environmental scientists who could use such images to work out how much ice has been lost or how ice is changing in those regions. And another example, which was quite striking in the article, is it looked at the difference between the extent of the Aral Sea over time, and you can see that over quite a long period, it shrunk quite dramatically. Goodness. I mean... Where, where does this go next then, Nick, do you think? You said some of this work had been declassified. Is there is there more data to come out? And what's the future of these satellites, do we know? Uh, unsurprisingly, it's not hugely clear because they are still <laughs> kind of secretive. The programme itself, Medea, has been shuttered. It was shuttered in 2015. And only now has Dr. Linda Zal been able to talk about her involvement in it. So what the future is, is not quite clear, but it doesn't seem that the recent Trump administration has been interested in this sort of climate change work. But perhaps with the Biden administration, there may be interest in looking at some of these other images that um, may be in the CIA or who knows (laughs) what information they've got. But it seems that in the past there's been a wealth of data that has been really useful for environmental scientists. Well, fantastic. Thanks, Nick. That is a super interesting story. And listeners, if you'd like to know more about both of the stories we discussed, you'll find links to them in today's show notes. And if you want even more stories like this delivered straight to your inbox, then make sure you sign up to The Nature Briefing. Once again, head over to the show notes where you'll find a link where you can do so. That's all for the show. Don't forget to look out later in the week for the next edition of CoronaPod. In the meantime, I've been Benjamin Thompson. And I've been Nick Howe. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 